You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her money comes to you through PRX. I am Jean Chatsky and welcome to Her Money. So glad to have all of you along with me today. Before I headed into the studio this morning, Hayden Field, who works on our team, told me a really frightening story. And while it's on the tip of my tongue, I just want to relay it to all of you. And then we'll get to our exciting guest because Betty Lou is with us today. But Hayden told me that Over the weekend, she realized her debit card had been breached. She started getting charges and fraud alerts that very clearly didn't belong to her. Over $1,000 was spent out of her checking account. And although she will get the money back because debit cards come with zero liability protection, she has had the experience that we've talked about so many times where it's going to take her up to two weeks to get that money back. And it's just a reminder, a reminder in real time, that although credit cards are a tool that have to be handled with caution because you certainly don't want to rack up too much in the way of credit card debt. They do provide some safety precautions. And when you shop with a credit card, you are not shopping with your own money. So if your credit card is breached, the thief may be able to use it and rack up charges, but those charges are not going to come out of your checking account, which means that your monthly budget is not going to be affected. So from Hayden's mouth to all of your ears, just a little reminder that you've got to make sure you watch your statements. You've got to make sure you're checking your credit reports regularly at least three times a year. And for many purposes, those credit cards are still the way to go. All right. So we are moving on. And Betty Lou is with me. Betty is an anchor at Bloomberg Television. She is the founder and CEO of Radiate, which is an education media company based in New York. It leverages multimedia to help today's managers grow into tomorrow's leaders. She is a proud graduate, as I am, of the University of Pennsylvania. So go Quakers. (laughs) Yay. Yay. Betty, thanks for coming on the show. You're joining us today via Skype. I want everybody to know that as well. And you have been on my radar for quite a while, but I got to say my interest was sparked by an article that you wrote about a personal experience that cost you $50,000. Yes. Tell me what happened. Tell us all what happened. (laughs) And Jean, it's so great to be be with you. And you've been on my radar too. I've been um, uh, been a big fan of your work, and so I'm so glad we finally got a chance to chance to talk. Me too. And, thanks. And, and the article you you mentioned, yes, is a story that I've told um, a lot of people, but I didn't think about writing it until just um, just a few weeks ago. And and it's really about when I had taken time off from my job. I had two children, my twin boys, and I was also at a moment when I was thinking, you know, do I want to continue with where I am, or do I want to move on to a different career track. And so I'd been a print reporter for many years, but I 
you know, got hit, uh, got bit by the television bug, as, as you can imagine. As um, so as, many as of you us know. do. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and so I thought, you know, I'd love to go from print to television, but how do I do that? And at the time, you know, this was over 10 years ago, it wasn't that easy to do that. You know, print and television were work and careers were very, very separate. So to make a long story short, um, you know, I'd taken my six months off to, to be with my children and I wanted to get back into the workforce and not only that, but get back into a different career. So um, luck, as luck would have it, you know, something happened in the universe and a, and a phone call landed or an email, I should say, landed in my inbox from someone I'd met years ago who said, uh, hey, you know, I'm looking for a, a reporter to work at um, CNBC Asia. You know, your your name came up again. You know, why don't we sit down and have a chat? And we, uh, you know, we did a quick interview. We hit it off. It seemed great. Like she, I knew, I, I knew an offer was going to come. I was so excited. This was going to be my chance to, you know, to switch careers and go into television. And uh, and I was so afraid that this job opportunity was going to slip from my fingers. That, um, you know, the day that she uh, sent me an offer letter, which I knew was coming. I was so nervous, but I knew it was coming. The offer letter came in my inbox and the salary she offered me was much lower than what I was expecting. And I was crushed. You know, I was disappointed. This job offer, by the way, also entails me moving overseas and moving my kids and I was gonna have to look for a new place. It was it was a lot of cost to it. Mm -hmm. But I was so scared that I was going to lose this opportunity, Gene, that I just said, yes, I'll take it. I don't care. You know, I was like, I just take it. And I did, and it did cost me, you know, as, as I mentioned in the article, $50,000. I knew that I could have gotten more than that. I knew people were being paid more than that. How did you confirm the fact that you would have been paid more? You know, I talked to my colleagues when I moved there. I talked to my colleagues, not that I asked them directly what their salaries were, but, you know, I kind of like canvassed a little bit, like, you know, what would be the average salary for someone starting in my position? You know, and I got the sense of what the TV, you know, what people with my experience at my level were getting paid. And I just knew I was being underpaid by a lot. And it wasn't until I left the job, um, I was on very good terms with my, with this woman, this boss who hired me. And she told me, you know, Betty, like, I was really surprised you took that first offer. I would have, you know, I would have given you more. I was waiting for you to, to negotiate with me, but you just took it. And she was like, and she said, don't ever do that again. You completely undervalued yourself. And so that was a huge lesson for me. And I've never done that since. <laughs> so I learned the hard way. Yeah, no, it's it's very hard, I think, particularly when you feel like you're getting a chance at something to ask for more. But it's a good lesson for all of us to keep in mind. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. Tell me about Radiate and what's, yeah. how did it come about? So I've always, and maybe it was from experiences like this, um, like what happened to me, that I've always been very curious from other people about how they became successful. Um, and, you know, I eventually got this job at Bloomberg where I was meeting very, very high level people, people who had made billions of dollars, millions and billions, um, everyone from Warren Buffett to, you know, Elon Musk, all these extremely successful people. And I always asked them after the interviews were, were done, you know, how did you become successful? What were your big mistakes? And they were fascinating stories. I decided that it, you know, it wasn't just me who had these questions, but lots of people have these questions. So I wrote a book about it called Work Smarts. And from that book came this idea that why don't we create a dynamic media platform where people can access this kind of information all the time, not just in books 
or not just in articles, but they can go on a platform that has these answers for them all the time. And so that's what we're building with Radiate. And you've interviewed some of the top CEOs in the world, people like Jack Welsh and Gary Vaynerchuk and yes. Ariana Huffington, who's been on this show, and Melanie yes, Hobson. Love her. Yes. So, so do I. What is it about them that is consistent? What, what, what do you see time and time again in the qualities that people have that enable them to succeed? I love that question, Jean. Um, I think there's a couple of things. The one that really strikes uh, that stuck out at me is how I mean, you have to obviously have a lot of confidence in yourself to be able to obtain the the levels of these people. But they all also have a great humbleness about them. So they all, you know, readily admit to like big mistakes they've made. Um, they all know that they're not the smartest people in the room. They may be smart at certain things, but they know that they need other people to help um, support them in other aspects. So, so there's always like a really great confidence in them, but there's also this idea that, you know, they know that they're only human and that they make mistakes and they need to, they need to find ways to, you know, find ways to, um, to, to minimize that. And that was really interesting to me because before I got to know people like that, I always thought, you know, they're perfect and they're so confident and they wake up, you know, fearless. But as I've gotten to know them, I've realized that, you know, they're just like, you know, they're just like us. They're just people. And they just happen to work really, really hard. When you look at the women in particular, I mean, I'm always struck mm. when I read information about how women struggle with the issue of being too assertive in the workplace yes. versus being yes. likable. How have the women that you've come in contact with walked that line? And how do you walk it yourself? I think it's so much more complicated for women. So um, this is related actually to the first story I told about, um, you know, about about asking for what you're worth. I think I, I hear a lot of, you know, very successful women tell younger women that, you know, um, that they, they should ask for what they want in salary negotiations. They should be assertive because they more often than not see that men walk into their offices asking for raises at any time, but women always wait until the right moment, let's say their yearly review, to ask for raises. So I always hear the follow-up advice, which is, you know, women have to be more assertive. But, you know, it's very hard for women to be assertive because when you are assertive, you're often disliked. Yeah. Um, you know, there there is a bias against you know, strong or assertive women, whether we like it or not. So I think women, um, instead of following, you know, rules like do this, don't do that, lean in, don't lean, you know, uh, you know, don't lean out here or, or whatever it might be. Like, I think instead of following rules, I think women have to really tap into building their emotional um, intelligence skills better than men. Um, you know, I think it takes a lot more EQ to be a successful woman in the workplace than it does for men. They're given a lot more leeway to be more assertive or aggressive or offensive than women are. So I think women have to really build up their EQ skills. They should really focus on that aspect. I want to talk about how to do that because I, I agree with you. I think it's really, really important. In fact, I think there's almost this ambition gap, right? Women are 
allowed to be a little less overtly ambitious than men are. But before we get there, let me remind everybody that we are so grateful to be able to bring you her money because of Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Betty Lou. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So we are happy to be back with Betty Lou of Radiate EQ versus IQ. Just lay it out there for me. What is the difference? Yeah. So IQ, of course, is obviously like your skill set, your intelligence, um, all of that stuff that you learn in school, which is extremely important. And I think in your younger years, IQ um, is more important in many ways than your EQ. But as you get older and as you become a leader, as you become a manager, your EQ becomes just as important or even more important than your IQ because people management becomes a very important part of your work life. So I think for women, um, so, so I think that that's essentially the, um, the difference I see, you know, between the two. And, you know, as I mentioned before, I think for women, it's even more important for them to not only have and it's so terrible, right? Because we're, we always have to do more to get what we're mm-hmm. doing, to get the same thing. But we have to be both very high in IQ, but very high in EQ too. Well, IQ is something that I, we're born with. At least that's sort of how I understand it. Yes. What about EQ? Are some people born with a higher EQ than others? And how can you grow yours? I agree. There's some people, you know, people are just born with EQ. I think that there's an element of people being born um I would say born with EQ, but maybe born into EQ. Um, You know, you might have like a family environment that's very social or you're thrown in as a young kid, you know, into into situations that are that are awkward or um, or hard. And that develops your EQ skills. I do think you can develop them. And one of the biggest ways I developed my EQ skills when I really sort of woke up to it um, is to be a good listener. You know, I, I am a firm believer and I've said this in, you know, when I give talks is that, you know, the most important person in, in someone's life is themselves. And, uh, you know, and as long as you can get other people, as long as you can let other people know that they're being heard mm-hmm. and that you're listening to them, that goes a long, long way in establishing a connection. People just really want to be able to talk about themselves. How do you draw them out? I mean, you're a reporter Hmm. at heart, so you must have some tricks up your sleeve. (laughs) Well, so listening is definitely, um, Gene, a very important part of it. Like, I've just always been a good listener. I just am very curious. So, you know, so I I really like listening to people. And I think um, I think the follow up question is also always what is is attached to that, but also what creates some magical connections with people. So not only do people want to be listened to, but they really want to be, they really want to know you're engaged in what they're saying. So, you know, as I found as a reporter, the follow, you almost often get the magical statement or the magical um, connection or comment in the follow-up questions. So, you know, how you ask the questions, how related they are to what they're saying creates that instant chemistry between the two of you. So that's kind of that's kind of how I've been able to do that. I think a lot of times people feel that if they're asking the questions, they are supposed to be an expert or at least 
partially expert in what they're talking about. And mm. in my own experience, I've learned a lot by admitting what I don't yes. know. By you know, if I'm talking to somebody who knows a lot about an area like technology, which I know next to nothing about, you know, I don't mind taking a step back and really asking for an education. And I think people appreciate the fact that you not only want the information, but you want to understand it and get it right. A hundred percent. I think that um, what something I've noticed and I've I've learned through the years, and even just working on you know work working and building Radiate, is I think people feel like when they're especially younger people, particularly as they get to more authoritative positions, they feel like they need to be the expert. They feel like they need to know everything. And I, I think it's not until you're really comfortable in who you are and you have established your credibility, can you really start to feel like you can admit to people, I don't know, I know, I really don't understand this. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about coding or I don't know, like, how does this work? And I think you can get so much gems of information by just asking someone like why or how or what is this um and people are so you know so glad to explain it to you Uh, but you have to get to that sort of confidence in yourself that like you know that you're confident enough to let people know that you don't know and and you know and that's something i think for younger people they feel like they need to be the expert um that's what establishes the credibility for them so we are at our heart a financial show And I'd love to know, as we wrap this up, from your perspective, what have you done in order to take control of your financial life for yourself and for your kids? So some people look at me and they say, uh, and and this is actually something I learned from another entrepreneur, or or he he put it in this way that I um, had been living it as well um, my whole life, which is, um, he takes a lot of risks in his life as an entrepreneur, but that just means that he is very conservative then when it comes to his own financial situation. So that's the way I live too. I take pretty big risks with my career. Um, you know, I've switched, I've switched tracks. I've, um, you know, taken time off to write a book or I've just, you know, I've quit jobs that I wasn't happy at. And so I've taken those risks, but because I do, I always make sure that I have a financial cushion and that I'm very conservative with my finances. So I save a lot. I probably save too much, but it gives me peace of mind. And I also, you know, do the things like I always max out my 401k contributions, things like that. Um, And I just always make sure that I have, you know, six to 12 months of salary cushion all the time so that if anything ever happened, I can always walk away and be fine financially for a year. It gives you so much freedom to do what you want if you know you have that financial cushion. It sounds like a lot. I know for, you know, Americans and people here, it's like, you know, saving that much seems like you're missing out on on some financial opportunity. But I say that it gives you peace of mind and it gives you the ability and the freedom to do what you want. I completely agree with you. And I think the way that you look at it is very, very smart because it's all part of the same portfolio that is your life. And if you're going to take risks in one area, your career becomes your stocks. Everything else has to be your bonds or your cash. It has to be the less risky components. Tell us where we can find more information about what's going on with you and what's going on with Radiate. So please visit our website. It's radiateinc.com. And actually, Jean, uh, I've not told anyone this, but we are 
going to be relaunching our site on April 3rd. So watch out in early April. If you log into the site, it'll be a totally new experience. And of course, you can always find me um, on Twitter, on Facebook, and LinkedIn at Betty W. Liu. And I'm soon on, I'm on Snapchat too. I'm trying that out now. Oh boy, you're brave. <laughs> brave woman. Thank you so much for being with us. This was terrific. Thank you, Jean. Thanks for having me. Oh, that was fun and interesting. Always makes me think about my own salary history as I listen to people talk about when they negotiated and when they didn't and makes me wish I had learned a little more about negotiating early on because I did not negotiate for my first few salaries. Really? I didn't. The first few. So when did you start negotiating and what was the catalyst for it? I did ask for more money with my very first job because the money was so slim that I felt like, okay, I have to ask for more, but there was no more there. So I guess the catalyst was just writing about negotiating and learning about negotiating. And it took me a little while to get smart about it. How about for you? As I sit across from my boss? Yeah. Admittedly, I don't think I've been as good at negotiation as I should have been from the start like you, I didn't know to counter or right. that I should counter when you first offered me my salary. I am digging myself into a hole are, here as we speak. Um, no, but like I, when I first moved here, you saw, you sat across from me in my first interview with you, my only interview with you, and you said you seem desperate. And it was because I was about to take another job in a completely different industry. That you did not want. I did not want, but I was a month and a half in hostessing wondering if I should move back to Arizona, if I could even afford to keep trying. And you sat across, you're like, you're about to sell out and you seem desperate. And I stood up and I was like, you are right. And then an hour later, <laughs> an hour later, I accepted your offer. So I think considering the circumstances, it's worked out. Just fine. Oh, more than fine. Just but, fine. Yes. All right. We've got questions yes, coming in. We do. What do we have? Our first is from Rebecca on Facebook. She writes, hi, Jean and team. Love your podcast and the variety of information and viewpoints you present with different guests. I'm a recently divorced mom of two. I'm trying to get my finances in a place that let me feel secure. And I've read and heard about so many methods of decreasing debt, but I'd love to hear your viewpoint. I'm a primary care doctor in academics. And yes, I make 20% less than the men equal to my ranking experience, she adds. And I have those absurd loans everyone talks about, but the 100000 I owe are at 1%. So I have decided not to pay those off more quickly, but instead I have almost eliminated any credit card debt. I have saved about 15000 So do I use that to pay off my car, even though it will deplete my emergency fund as I owe about the full fifteen? thousand or should i guard that and keep paying for three more years so a couple of things here first of all great job reducing the interest rate on those student loans and that's the playbook that you want to be working for as far as these other things are concerned whenever we talk about getting rid of debt we want to try to reduce the interest rate so that we can get rid of it as cheaply as possible and, in fact, pay it off over time so that we can funnel more into our savings and investments. I would not touch the $15,000. I would look at refinancing that car loan. Um, car loans, as 
although many people have never heard of this, can be refinanced like other debts. Credit unions, in fact, are really, really good at this. They've they've put a stake in the ground as far as auto loan refinances are concerned. And um, there's some other banks out there that do it as well. Shop around for the best financing. See if you can beat whatever it is you're earning now or you're paying now. The one caveat, don't extend the term of your loan. Keep it at three years so that you are not paying more interest over time. But then I would just continue your trajectory of keeping the credit card debt at a minimum to zero, paying off the auto loan over time, paying off the student loans over time, and plowing all the additional money that you have into saving and investing. Great. Thank you. And sure. Rebecca, I know this was a two-part question, and I'm saving your second half for another episode because it's just That'll keep you listening, question. Rebecca. Yes. <laughs> Our next is from Will Adams on Twitter. He says, regarding credit cards, when or should I close accounts I don't use anymore to keep it open for the just-in-case, in quotations? Hmm. To keep it open for the just-in-case. Mm-hmm. That gives me a little bit of, of pause because what you don't want is so much credit out there that you're tempted to use it and rack up a lot of credit card debt. The reason to keep open credit lines that you're not using is that if they represent the card that you've had in your wallet the longest, that lengthy relationship is boosting your credit score. Also, the fact that you've got a higher credit limit than you're actually using is helping keep your credit score significantly higher. That's actually a big part of your score. So those are the reasons to keep it open. The the just in case, I would look at what you really think you're going to need. Chances are pretty good that if you have a very, very large expenditure, something like a car that you want to buy, an education that you want to finance, a home that you want to renovate, you'll be able to get a much cheaper source of financing for that than a credit card. So that's just my two cents on that. If you've got a lot of credit cards that you're just not using and you feel temptation to use them, I'd start closing them over the course of a couple of years, just slowly close one, wait a while, close another, wait a while, protect the one that you've had the longest, and don't close any in the six to 12 months before you're going to take out a mortgage or apply for a car loan, because that will ding your score a little bit. In the situation that you're closing, or you you decide to start closing if you have a bunch of them, Mm -hmm. do you target the high interest rate ones first? Oh, I would. Yeah, you, even high if you interest don't have rate, any money on them. Yeah, high interest rate, high annual fee. I mean, any with an annual oh, fee, fee because yeah. that's money that you're going to end up having to pay anyway. I'd target those first. Closing your cards game plan. Yes, okay. there you go. And our final question is an email from Lindsay. She writes, hi, Jean, love your podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of your expertise with the world. My question is, I am preparing for my first child and would like to start contributing to a college savings fund that will have a good return. What financial groups do you recommend? Rather than recommend specific financial groups, I want you to take a look at a 529 college savings plan and look at the plans that are based where you live because often you get a state income tax deduction for making a contribution to your own state's plan. Go to savingforcollege.com. 
great website. It actually ranks 529 college savings plans in the very same way that Morningstar ranks mutual funds. You'll see four-star plans and five-star plans. Um, Morningstar also does this for 529 college savings plans. And you don't have to put money in your own state's plan, even if you get some sort of reward for doing so, you can put money in a plan of another state. And the reason where you may choose to do that is if your state's plan isn't a particularly good performer. Great. Thanks. Yes, it does. Thank you, Jean. Oh, thank you, Kelly. And let me just point out, we've been teeing this up for a number of episodes now. You all know this is our 50th episode of Her Money, and we have 50 books to give away. Chances are pretty good if you've heard a guest on our podcast, Gretchen Rubin, Ariana Huffington, so on and so on and so on. We've got their books to give away. Our authors have been incredibly generous with their materials. And here's what you have to do in order to get your hands on one. You can contact us by Twitter, by Facebook, at gene at genechatsky.com, on LinkedIn. And you got to tell us how her money has made a difference in your financial life. Use the hashtag her money podcast. Just be brief. Tell us what it's done for you. And we will start sending these books out in the mail. We're very excited to be able to share this incredible library with you. And while we're talking credit score, we have some good news in our weekly Thrive segment for your credit scores. Credit bureaus and debt collectors are about to become a little more forgiving. The three major credit bureaus, those are Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, have decided to remove civil lawsuit judgments and many tax liens from people's credit reports starting July 1st. And removing this information from your files could increase the scores of up to 14 million Americans. By how much? Well, we're still waiting to figure that out. But what's more is that one of the largest debt collection companies, Encore Capital Group, has shortened the time it reports paid collections from seven years to two years. Not to mention, it won't report new collection accounts to the bureaus if you start making payments within 90 days of being notified of the debt. This is really good news. Now, if you're thinking... Hey, hold on a minute. I thought my paid collections were already forgiven. You're right. Both the latest versions of your FICO score and Vantage score, which not as many people have heard of, but is a competitor to FICO score, don't hold those paid collections against you. But many lenders still use older versions of your scores that count past collections. And this can result in lower scores that can prevent you from getting credit cards and loans or result in you paying more in interest than you really need to. The bureau's move to clean up your files and the collector's moves to keep them clean could result in more accurate credit scores and higher ones at that. All good news. Thank you all so much today for joining me on Her Money. Thanks to Betty Lou for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, Please subscribe to the show at iTunes. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. 
Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week. We've got Beth Kobliner coming into the studio. She's the author of the new book, the new bestseller, I should say, How to Make Your Kid a Money Genius Even When You're Not. We'll talk soon. 